Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Today, I'd like to be talking about uh, uh, the topic of divine hiddenness. And I came to a very satisfactory answer to this objection against God's existence, ironically, from talking to an atheist about the problem of evil. Uh, we, I posted a meme on my Cerebral Faith Facebook page a while back, and it was of a man... He was in front of his house. The house was burning, and the man said, oh, no, God, why? Why, God? And I put in the the thought, the word, the speech bubble that was headed toward up to heaven, up to the sky, that uh, he said, the butterfly effect. It would literally take me a 100 years to explain to you the trillions and trillions of different greater goods that could come about from this one single effect of suffering. And then the man uh, looks down and he goes, "Oh, okay." Uh, so that's one of the that's one of the uh, re- responses to the problem of evil that I give. That uh, the probabilistic version, anyway, that we are not in a position to judge whether or not God has a good reason for permitting any instance of suffering, because every event that occurs sends ripples into the future, and so God's reason for permitting any given single instance of suffering might it might have a good reason that comes about in the future and had god not allowed that morally that that evil or that instance of suffering the greater good that god wanted to bring about would not come about so if d is a greater good and god cannot get to d without allowing events a b and c then god will allow event A in order to bring about C, in order to bring about B, and B in order to bring about C, and therefore we get D. Um, And so, and in fact, I argue that, you know, there may be more than one greater good that God can bring about from any instance of suffering. There might be hundreds of greater goods that manifest themselves in different time periods, in different stages of history. Uh, in different people's lives and even in different countries, um, we time travel enthusiasts know this full well. If you go back in time and you you even so much as step on a butterfly, you you come back to the present and a whole bunch of different things are different. We all know that everything that we do today, everything that happens today, has an, an effect on what would occur. You know, we all know. Hey, if if I had not pulled out into traffic, then these events would follow. Well, God knows that, being omniscient. He knows everything that would occur in any given circumstance. And so God might allow some instance of suffering, knowing all of the various things that would occur if he allowed it to occur, and all the things that wouldn't, all the other things that would occur if he, st- if he stepped in to, inter- uh, to intervene. So that's one of the points I give, and and this is what I was trying to convince my interlocutor. I'm not going to reveal his last name, but his first name is Sam. We talked about we we talked on the Cerebral Faith podcast about a bunch of different topics. Uh, he's been visiting my page and my website uh, for a while. We we get we get into arguments all the time, but it's always civil. He's very polite, and I, be, I believe he's I believe he actually just wants to know what is true and I, I I think he's not like some of these atheists who suppress the truth and unrighteousness I think he really is just he's wrestling with all these issues um I don't know I part I, I just want to throw this out there I think I think he might uh I, I think he I think he might come to Christ someday if, if I if you know it, uh, down the line somewhere, we talk enough about different subjects. He might become a Christian, but we've we've talked about we've argued over whether Tim Stratton's free thinking argument against naturalism is valid. If you remember, I had an episode on him where we talked about 
where I interviewed Tim Stratton, and Tim Stratton defended an eight-step syllogism uh, proving the existence of the soul, the existence of libertarian free will, and showing that naturalism is false. We argued whether or not the contingency argument for God's existence is sound. We've argued over whether the fine-tuning argument for God's existence is sound. We argued over whether or not we argued over whether or not um, uh, God is just for sending people to hell. Uh, we talked we, we, and it, we, we, we've had very lengthy threads uh, on the blog on the website's blog post comment section and in the comment sections on cerebral faith. Gosh, what else? And we've talked about the problem of evil probably three different on three different occasions, likely. Uh, we haven't talked, we haven't debated the resurrection of Jesus yet. I really want us to get that because that's like, look, it doesn't matter if you find any other argument for God's existence valid or not. If you, if, if we can establish that Jesus died and rose from the dead, as I have explained in uh, a few weeks ago in those uh, early 2015 recordings I uploaded, if we can establish that, we got the Christian worldview. You don't have to be convinced of the Kalam cosmological argument to be a Christian. You just have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So I, I really want to get talking uh, to him about that. But in this most recent discussion on the problem of evil, um, I posted the meme on March 26. Uh, and the, the guy is going, no, and he, his house is on fire. And he says, why, God, why? And, you know, the speech bubble goes up to heaven, and God says, I've got it right in front of me right now. God says, butterfly effect. It would literally take me 100 years to explain the various greater goods this one single instance of suffering would bring about through the ripples of time and space. And the man looks down and goes, oh. Um, and so Sam commented, um, and we started debating uh about you know whether or not it was it's feasible for God to actualize a world of free will and whether or not we are in a position to judge uh, whether whether all of the the evils in the world uh, render God's existence improbable or not. Um, and he also took issue with my um, my theodicy that one of the greater goods that God's bring brings about through the evil and suffering that occurs is bringing people to salvation. Like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the of the testimonies I listen to of people coming to Christ, they are people who the testimonies always involve immense suffering of one degree or another. They go through a lot of stuff, and they come to the ends of themselves. They cry out to God, and you know for salvation and for help, and and they they're like God, if you just help me, I'll dedicate my life to you, and God uh, intervenes in their lives, and they get they get saved, and then they go on to have a good re saving relationship with him. Uh, he objected to this, saying that it was manipulative or, or coercive, and I, I disputed that. And I also pointed out that that's not one of the only what the things not one of the only things that God permits uh, suffering and evil for. I'm not going to read our conversation, but I'm just I'm just talking about this because it leads up to uh, I don't know if you want to call it an epiphany or a revelation or a realization. Um, but anyway, the our our back and forth conversation on the problem of evil and and the, the probabilistic version. Um. If you want to read it yourself, you can. It's act, It's publicly available. It's on. It's on the Cerebral Faith Facebook page. Just click on. Uh, go to cerebral facebook.com slash cerebral faith. Click on photos, and just look for the the meme. Just look for the comic strip with the guy who whose house is on fire. And I'm, I'm having a conversation with this fellow, this nice fellow named Sam, and. Uh, if, I mean, if you want to read that whole thread, if you're interested in that, I mean, it's a very fascinating conversation. You can do that if you want to. And I'm sure Sam wouldn't mind me pointing you to that because it is – it's public. It's not like this conversation took place in direct messaging or a private email or anything. I mean, it's it's out there for the whole world to see. 
but yeah, this is um, his his one of his arguments was that if if my if if I say that God actualized this world, he had to actualize some world where evil and suffering exist because God wanted a world with libertarianly free creatures. Libertarian free creatures is necessary for there to be love. If there were no love, if, if there were no free will, and God causally determined us to all love him and each other and be nice to each other and always do the right thing all the time, never do anything evil, then it would be a robot world, and our love would not be genuine, either when directed towards him or towards each other. Our love would just be artificial. It would be superficial. It would be robot love, if robot love is even a thing. Um, us saying I love you, God, would be no more meaningful to him than getting a hand puppet and saying a hand puppet say, Oh, you're so handsome, I love you, and you're a nice guy. Um and so that was that was my argument. Uh one of my arguments was it's it's possible because you know my int- um and this is not just Sam, this is a lot of people who do this. They they often they often conflate the logical version of the problem of evil with the probabilistic version. So I had to first do away with the logical version and say, hey, just because God's all-powerful, that doesn't mean that he can create any world that he wants. You can't – it's logically impossible to force someone to freely do something. Omnipotence is defined as being able to do anything that's logically possible, and it's possible that any world of free creatures God could create – you know, no matter how you, he arranged the pieces on the chessboard, so to speak, whether, you know, no matter how he, if he determined whether I would be born much, much later in history or much, much earlier in history, and he did the same with everyone else, determining what circumstances we would all find ourselves under, there would still be people who abuse their free will and go wrong. That's at least possible. So that premise of the logical version of the problem of evil that says, uh, if God is all-powerful, he can create any kind of world he wants, is not necessarily true, and therefore the logical version of the problem of evil is not sound. And I also did the cognitive limitations argument saying, hey, look, every event sends ripples into the effect, so how, how do we know that God doesn't have a good reason for permitting X, Y, or Z? Um, and that just kind of led to this conversation about, well, He's skeptical that free will is required for love. He doesn't. He doesn't think. Um, he doesn't think it's required. And uh, but he 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 grants for the sake of the argument that w- we need free will in order to love God and to love each other. And this also bleeds into the problem of hell. You know why God? It, it ain't why God doesn't force everyone into heaven and and keep people from going to hell. Whether you think that's annihilation, as I do, or eternal torment. Uh, why doesn't God just, you know, with his strong and mighty arm, just scoop everyone up and force everyone into heaven? Well, we wouldn't freely, we wouldn't genuinely love him in that case. We have to have the ability to choose to love God or to reject or to hate God. We got to choose to praise him. We got to have the ability to choose to praise him or to blaspheme him, to raise our hands in, in worship or to raise our hand in order to flip the bird at him. We've got to have that freedom. If we don't have that freedom, then we can't love God. And we got good reasons to believe that that's really, really important to him because Jesus in the New Testament said the two greatest commandments, the first one is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And without free will, we, we couldn't obey those two greatest commandments. Not, uh, not we, we couldn't do it and it not be artificial and meaningless. And so here's what his response to that was. Okay, granted, you know, we need free will, but if God uses evil and suffering, if he if he introduces or if he allows a lot of bad stuff to happen to you so that you end up coming to Christ, isn't that a little bit coercive? I don't think it is because you still have the ability to choose to, you know, be hard-headed and endure your suffering. Um and not bow the knee to Christ if you are really that obstinate. You know, I'm I'm one of those people who came to Christ through um through being broken. 
and but I but when I came when I when I gave my life to Christ, I didn't feel like I couldn't choose otherwise. It it did feel like I really had, and especially given the particular kind of experience with God that I had, which, I, which I'm not going to go into. Uh, it really felt like I I could opt out if if I chose to, but I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't want to. But I don't. So I I don't think that that is. I don't think it's coercive. I think, yeah, God is giving people an extra shove and saying, I know that if you endured these certain kinds of sufferings, you would freely choose to be saved. And so I'm going to allow you to to suffer all these things. So you end up becoming a Christian. So he, you know, he does that because some of us were more hard headed than others. And we need an, we need an extra shove, but it's still resistible. It's still resistible. It's not. It's not coercive. And so, but then his argument was that the very fact that God issues an ultimatum is compulsory. He argued that for God to say, "Worship me or burn," you know, come into a loving, saving relationship with me, uh, do the right thing. Or I will send you either to a realm of eternal torment, or I will annihilate you. That's compulsory. That's coercive. He likened it to a, a woman, a man putting a gun up to a woman's head and saying, uh, "Have sex with me, or I will shoot you." Uh, and he said, "Well, we obviously would not consider some a woman who had sex with a man in that instance to be free." she she wouldn't be free she would be she would have been coerced and and i argue uh, what my argument was i argued that you know technically in a manner of speaking i mean she was still free because she had the ability to choose either to have sex with the man or to choose death to choose to say no i'm not going to no matter what you do to me and then she gets the bullet in the head so the the PAP the PAP principle of alternative possibilities, uh, a, a concept that is necessary for libertarian free will, at least in most cases, at, at least, uh, that's still preserved. That's not overridden. The woman still had the ability to choose a have sex with the man or non a get shot in the head. This is very similar to what martyrs do. A member of ISIS or um, or Al Qaeda or any other terrorist group puts a sword to your neck and say, be, you know, announce that that Muhammad is uh, God's prophet, or lose your head. We say, nope, Je- nope, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we lose our heads. We still had the ability to either uh, confess Allah and, Mo- and Muhammad or lose our heads for Christ. We still had that ability. So it is it really does it really do away with free will? Uh, let me see. Um and he argued that you know, yeah, even though yeah, even though you have the ability uh to have sex or die, you have a free choice. Uh nevertheless, he said it's perfectly reasonable to say that her free will has been interfered with. Legal documents say this all the time. It is certainly true that the rapist should not have put her in that situation, but it is also true that she is being coerced into it. And then he gave this illustration to show that uh, he said, quote, a man named George was deeply in love with a woman named Eve. He wanted to marry her since high school, but she wasn't interested. She had rejected his advances multiple times. However, she ended up caught for murder, and George was the judge. After hearing the facts in the case, although it broke his heart, he sentenced her as required by the law. The penalty was death. And uh, However, they lived in an Islamic country that also enforced Sharia law. This meant that the family of the murder victim could forgive the murderer and let them off with a small penalty, either as an act of charity or for blood money. 
The family demanded that Eve pay money or she faced the death penalty. Neither she nor her family nor even her entire community could pay the price required, however, so she was doomed to pay the wages of her crime, which was death. However, after the trial was done, George shed his robe of a judge and assumed that of a man who was deeply in love with, in love with her. He was extremely well paid for his services, and therefore he offered to pay the blood price for her. However, there was a catch. She would have to marry George forever, and this included having sex with him. Also, she would have to be given a new heart by letting a neuroscientist reprogram her to love George. Her options were essentially marrying him forever and all that entails, or dying. So Eve accepted his proposal. George paid the blood price and, and, and so on. And so this is this is like an this is an analogy to, to the situation we're in. We're we're under God's wrath. We're sinners. We we deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. But God stepped down, became a man, died on the cross, rose from the dead, gives us grace, and we can receive forgiveness. But we have to enter into a loving relationship with Him and be regenerated, or face the death penalty. And his argument here is. That would be that would be coercive. You couldn't say that Eve freely, in a real sense, entered into a relationship with George because she felt the pressure of death. You know, that was her only other option, either enter into a relationship with George or suffer death. And she could be. She, she she might enter a relationship with George just simply out of uh, a, a desire for self-preservation. Yeah, she could choose death. There was nothing preventing her from doing that. But nevertheless, she was enormously pressured by the survival instinct to enter into a relationship with George. And so... It kind of, <clears throat> it's not really, uh, even though it's kind of free, it's also, in one sense, it is also kind of not. Now, as I was talking to George about this, I mean, uh, not to George, to Sam about this, it occurred to me that divine hiddenness could solve the coerciveness problem that you know that god has worship me or perish i said i think the whole rape analogy is flawed anyway as we're dealing with a god who judges sin versus accepting his gift of salvation the George and Eve scenario is closer, but even then, it's a flawed analogy. All analogies break down at some point, and we're dealing with a being like God who is, as some theologians put it, wholly other. It's very difficult at times to come up with analogies that aren't plagued with issues. In this case, George is not a maximally great being who deserves and is entitled to the love of Eve, and the lack of love on Eve's part is immoral. George is not the summum bonum. George didn't actually suffer Eve's penalty on her behalf like Jesus the God-man did. Now, this is not the place I wanted to read. Or maybe, or maybe it is. Uh, knowing Eve that never would... Yeah, but... So so it, it is a bit of a flawed analogy, but... Um, all analogies are flawed. But I think Sam is actually right in that... You know, whether George is deserving of worship... Whether George deserves Eve's love, that's really not the point. His point was, if you have this ultimatum in place, enter a relationship with me or you will be annihilated in the flames of hell. Then, you know, people might just do that out of a fear of hell. People might become Christians just because they fear damnation. And that's kind of, uh, that that's not really conducive to a genuine love relationship that's you know to people co people coming into a relationship with you out of fear for their own well-being <clears throat> so 
Here's what I said, and this is when I, th- as I was typing it, the realization hit me. I said, here's the situation. We're all sinners, Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 to 4, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We all deserve death, Romans 6, 23. But God loves us and doesn't want that for us. So he provided all the means to give us life by suffering the penalty in our stead and giving us grace to repent. See John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, John chapter 12, verse 32. God has got to punish sin somehow, either at the cross or in hell. If he doesn't punish sin at all, it would be unjust. We have a choice, repent or perish. And yes, the former requires and involves a relationship with God. But I don't see how that is coercive. I mean, God is just saying, pay the fine or go to jail. And this is what I wrote next. You know, some have responded to the divine hiddenness objection by saying if God made his existence so obvious that everyone would obey him out of fear, perhaps God has indeed let people with the ability to doubt his existence and the Bible for for that reason. This way, if people choose to reject Christ, they can comfort themselves by talking themselves out of belief like the Pharisees did. I've always doubted this response to divine hiddenness, but as I dwell on your objection, I'm starting to see the wisdom in it. And then I told him to see Inspiring Philosophy's video on divine hiddenness. And he said, um, so basically, this is, this is what this is this is I, I I think that Sam is actually right that the ultimatum would be coercive, but I think divine hiddenness actually solves that problem. God what God wants, what God wants is for us to have a loving relationship with him. He wants us to genuinely love him and love each other. That's why he gives us free will. That's why he gives us the ability to flip the bird at him. And that's why he gives atheists the ability to say all these nasty things about him on the internet. That's why. Uh, that's why he. That's why Richard Dawkins is able to call him every single name in the book in his in his book, The God Delusion. I mean, he has this very lengthy paragraph where he calls God all sorts of nasty names: a misogynist, a homophobe, blah 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 blah. We have the freedom to love God or hate God. That's what he wants. Without that freedom. We wouldn't be able to truly love him. But what about the ultimatum? Wouldn't that pressure us to obey God out of fear? Out of fear for our own self-preservation? Yes, God, I will serve you for all eternity. Just please don't burn me. Well, hide yourself just enough, and the pressure is off. This this is what Sam wrote. Um, he said in in one of his comments, he said, uh, "But how much do people fear the the gaze of the omniscient the of the omniscient himself?" This is probably the best proof that people aren't subconsciously aware that God exists. Most people are quite more afraid for their privacy and wrongdoing uh, around others. You can't be clearly aware that God exists unconsciously while showing and having this complete lack of fear, quote and end quote. And this is what I said in response to him. I said, dude, that's the whole point of hiddenness. It would be impossible for me to choose between good and evil if I had an overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit watching me from above. You know, let me ask you this, ladies and gentlemen, could you, could, could you, how, how much bad stuff could you do if you had the Holy Spirit overwhelmingly present to you at all times? Like, could, could you watch pornography if you had a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit sitting on your shoulder, giving you a disapproving gaze? You know, I'm thinking like in the form of a dove, like in most religious paintings, or Maybe just Jesus sitting in a chair adjacent to you. You know, could how much how how much 
how much freedom would you really have if if you felt that God was in your face all the time to do to choose between good or evil? I don't I don't think you could. I don't think you would have that freedom. You you would you would feel you would you would probably do good just because you you are over you are very acutely aware that you are being watched at all times. Now, as a, as as a Christian, I believe Proverbs fifteen three: the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping. As a Christian, I believe Proverbs fifteen three: the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even though I believe this, I believe this is true. I believe God exists. I believe He's omniscient. Nevertheless, when I want to do, when I want to sin, it's very easy for me to pretend. Like he's like he doesn't exist, or that he does, or that he's not watching. It's very easy for me to just kind of shove that into my subconscious and, and not and not consciously think about. It. Now I'm not going to think about the fact that God is watching me right now. I, I mean, come on, we all, we all, everybody, every every Christian has probably had those moments where we're tempted to sin. We shove the knowledge of God into our subconscious and. We do what we like, and then afterwards we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit telling you that was not right. You need to ask God to forgive you now. And we're like, oh, I'm so sorry, God. You know, we've all ha- we've all been there. But if I had if I had an overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit at all times, that probably wouldn't be doable. I probably wouldn't be able. I would probably just watch my P's and Q's and do good all the time just because I'm acutely aware, not just not just consciously aware, but acutely aware that God is watching me. You know, it's that kind of feeling that you have when you're trying to surf the internet and someone is watching over your shoulder. You're, you're very uncomfortable. Even if you're not doing anything illegal online, you still don't want to have that. Per- you're like, dude, go, go away. Go do something else. Stop, stop leaning over my shoulder. Go Um, so divine hiddenness really makes free will possible. It makes it possible for us to, to sin, to either sin or not sin, do good or, or evil. Therefore we have, therefore God can hold us accountable for when we do evil. He can hold us accountable because we had the ability to choose otherwise. Likewise, he can reward us when we do good. Now, I'm not teaching works-based salvation here. We can't work our way to heaven. But the Bible does teach that there are things that God will reward us with for for the good things that we've done on earth. Salvation is by faith alone. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses, eight, verses 9 to 10. And I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I honestly don't, I honestly don't understand how anyone can hold to a works-based salvation. Even the Roman Catholic view that it's faith and works. I mean— this is what the passage literally says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Not by works. I don't think that leaves room even for the faith and works view. It's, it's faith alone that saves us. We have faith in God. God regenerates us. He, he cleanses us with the blood of Christ, and that's how we're justified. Okay, but uh, rabbit trail over. We um, we do have we he can he we do get rewards. The Bible teaches this. Paul talks about this. Um, you know, us having different rewards, and if we uh, so yeah, so God, if we have the free will to choose good or evil, then God can legitimately reward us when we do good say, well done, my good and faithful servant, give us a pat on the head or whatever. And when we do evil, he can hold us accountable. And we can legitimately come into a loving relationship with God. It's interesting to know that in Genesis chapter 3, the the historical record uh, report of the very first human sin, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, it was only after they ate the fruit, after they listened to the Nahash, the serpent, that's when God showed up in a theophany, walking in the garden. What if God were there, that you know, or the, the angel of the Lord, Malak Yahweh, 
if you've if you if you've read any of Michael Heiser stuff, you you know that God usually uh, manifested Himself visibly in this second person who was distinguished from the Yahweh in heaven, but this person, this humanoid figure, was Yahweh, and he was called Malak Elohim. But, again, that's a rabbit trail. I don't want to go down. What if God had showed up visibly like that, like he did to Gideon, like he did to Jacob when he wrestled with him in, in, was it Genesis 37? Or, no, I can't. what if he was there when Adam and Eve were conversing with the serpent? Do you think that they probably it probably would have been like, oh, God is watching. Uh, sorry, sorry, serpent, go away. Uh, we're not we're not going to buy what you're selling. If he was there beforehand, they might have obeyed out of fear. And what I told Sam was. When he said what 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 I just quoted, you know how how much do people fear the gaze of the uh, quote? How much do people fear the gaze of the omniscient himself? This is probably proof that people aren't subconsciously aware that God exists. Most people are quite more afraid for their privacy in doing wrong around others. You can't be clearly aware that God exists unconsciously while showing and having this complete lack of fear. End quote. I said, that's the point. I said, Sam, you just gave a good argument for why God maintains a certain level of hiddenness. It's so that we can it's so that we we can sin without fear of the gaze of the omniscient, as he put it. You know, we can watch porn, we can, you know, do tax fraud, we can pirate movies, we can, you know, call our neighbor mean names, you know, we can do these things uh because it's easy to just shove the consciousness of uh, you know, even if even if you're not an atheist, even if you're a theist and you're tempted to sin, you can shove that into your subconscious and and go ahead and sin. You know, Adam and Eve were not atheists. They I mean, they walked with God and they had other Elohim around them. They they were in the presence of the divine council. They ser- they certainly believed that God existed and they ate the fruit anyway because he wasn't overwhelmingly present at that moment. So, I think that given divine hiddenness, there is no coerciveness in God having the ultimatum, uh, turn or burn, repent or perish. It, the, the pap is preserved. The pap is preserved. And... We really ought. We re- I do think divine hiddenness perfectly answers the objection that the Turner Burn ultimatum is coercive. The fact that disbelief in God and hell and the Bible are even possible is to is enough to keep coercion at bay. As the philosopher J.P. Moreland put it, quote, "God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to resist him uh, people who want to choose to ignore him can do it." End quote. Quote, "God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it, end quote. That's what J.P. Moreland said. And so, yeah, there is enough evidence so we can know God is there. It's sufficient. And I would say it's sufficient to, as Paul says in Romans 1, that people ha- people are without excuse. People are without excuse. Obviously, there isn't enough evidence to make unbelief utterly impossible. That's what J.P. Moreland said. God maintains a delicate balance, keeping his existence sufficiently evident so that we can be justified in being theist. We can be epistemologically justified in affirming that God exists, but he's hidden enough to where we can 
We can talk ourselves out of belief. We can ignore arguments for God's existence. We have evidence for God's existence. God is not He's not left us without a witness. He's not left us without clues. He's left clues in the creation. We have evidence like the origin of the universe, the the fine-tuning of the universe, the fine-tuning of our local solar system and Earth-Moon planetary system. We have the moral... We have the moral law written on our hearts. We have the modal ontological argument. We have historical evidence for the reliability of the Old and New Testaments. We have historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I had to a couple of podcasts on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago. Um, but we don't have the Shekinah glory overwhelm us. We don't have anything that would turn persuasion into coercion. We have enough evidence to persuade us to affirm that God exists, to affirm that Christianity is true, and we can choose to enter a relationship with him. But we could say, ah, you know what, all this religion stuff is just nonsense, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, we don't need God to account for the origin of the universe. Maybe maybe things can just pop into being out of nothing without a cause or whatever. Oh, the, God, God's not responsible for the fine-tuning of the universe. It's, it's, we, it's an infinite number of universes, and we just happen to find ourselves in just that one. Or, you know what? We can't account for the minimal facts for Jesus Christ's res, for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we can't account... We, there's no naturalistic explanation for the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances to the disciples, the post-mortem appearance to Paul, and the post-mortem appearance to James. Uh, and there's absolutely – we've got 15 different naturalistic theories that just are plagued. They're just plagued with holes. They got, they've got as many holes as Swiss cheese. But you know what? Miracles are just so highly improbable that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or I just I don't know I don't know I don't know how to account for the minimal facts, but I know Jesus didn't rise from the dead, because then I just might have a cosmic authority. So I'm 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 persuaded that divine hiddenness is the perfect way to. I mean. We, we have free will to choose either to enter into a relationship with God or to reject him and go to hell. We have the ability to choose to accept God or to reject him and go to hell. And we have the ability to, when the Holy, when the Holy Spirit comes to us and enables us with provenient grace and pulls us to salvation, we can either choose to go in that direction uh, we can either ch or choose to do nothing and just let the Holy Spirit bring us to God, like in Kenneth Keithley's ambulatory model. You know, you, you get into an ambulance, uh, uh, medical staff put you in an ambulance, you're unconscious, and uh, you wake up in the middle of the ambulance. And you can either choose to just let the people take you to the hospital and patch you up. Or you can choose to fight them off, hop out of the ambulance and die of your own injuries. You know, we can either choose to listen to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit telling us that Christianity is true, or we we can just let God bring us into his arms, or we can fight him. We can push him away. We can choose to follow the evidence where it leads. We can investigate natural theology arguments like the Kalam cosmological argument, the cosmic fine-tuning argument, the local fine-tuning argument, the moral argument, the ontological argument, the contingency argument, the historical the, the historical evidence for the reliability of the New Testament, and and for the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we can we can follow we can investigate these issues evidentially and follow the evidence where it leads. Or when we're looking at the arguments and the evidence, we can talk ourselves out of the conclusion. There's a we can talk ourselves. In other words, not only can we enter into a relationship with God, or not only can we accept the the Lamb's wedding proposal and or reject it. But we can prevent ourselves from believing that there even is a God to have a relationship with. It is possible for us to not even believe that there is even such a, an ultimatum being presented to us. I believe that this is – I believe that divine hiddenness actually is a necessary requirement 
for entering into a relationship with God to be adequate. Even now, and even to Christians, even after we enter into a loving relationship with God, there is still a time after conversion where God remains hidden to us. When I'm talking to God in the, every morning, I pray every morning, I'm, ta- I'm talking to God, I'm asking him to do things. I, sometimes I go off on a tangent and I just start talking about, oh, hey, you know, I wish I would get some more patrons so I could get a new computer <laughs> so I could go to YouTube. Um, and I, I'm talking, I talk to him about all these different ones I saw on Amazon. Whatnot. Not, not once does he audibly talk back. Well, why not? I'm already in. I'm already in his... He doesn't have to he doesn't have to worry about overriding my freedom, does he? Well, yeah. I mean, this really depends on your soteriology to a certain extent, whether or not you believe apostasy is possible. I think it is possible. Hebrews 6 seems clear enough, and I've got some blog posts on cerebralfaith.net making a case that over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, the Bible warns us not to apostatize. If apostasy were modally impossible, why would there be warnings not to fall away? Why would there be warnings to not go back into unbelief, to 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 return to dead works and things like that? I mean, the book of Hebrews is littered with them. Go go listen to Michael Heiser's series on his Naked Bible podcast on the book of Hebrews. It's littered with, I mean, the whole, over and over and over again, the, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews is very, very afraid that his readers are going to fall into sin and unbelief, that they're going to reject the gospel because they're undergoing persecution, and it's ju- it would just be so easier to reject Christianity and, and, and go back to the lives they used to live before they became Christians so they could stop being persecuted. He's very afraid of that, and he warns them over and over again. Well... God wants to make keep a, he wants to make apostasy possible. That isn't to say that he 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 does want to keep his sheep from falling away. And as I explain in I have a three part blog post series on this that God has actualized a world where we can where the where the elect can fall away, but they won't fall away. And again, that's a rabbit trail. I'm not going to go down that road, but. God keeps his presence. He maintains that same degree of hiddenness after conversion so that you can go back. You can freely choose, you know, to use the wedding analogy that God often uses in the Bible, you know, the bride of Christ and the Christ and his bride, you know, the the, the bride can freely choose to get a divorce. Now, someday we are going to have we are going to have that that level of hiddenness removed. We're going to have what theologians call the beatific vision. I'm going to see Jesus face to face when I go to heaven. But for a certain time period, there's going to be this this freedom to choose Christ or reject Christ. And in eternity, that that choice, if I choose to persevere, that's going to be cemented into eternity. God's going to cement my decisions into eternity. I talk more about this in my blog post. Uh, will will people sin in heaven? Just go to cerebralfaith.net, click on the magnifying glass, the search engine, and type in will people sin in heaven. I have a whole uh, blog post about this. Um, so, yeah. And before I end this podcast, Oh well, first I want to talk about the whole worship, the whole worship or burn thing. I have I had a blog post recently called "Worship Me or Burn: An Oversimplification of an Atheist Meme." A lot of people, a lot of atheists, they want to they want to paint God as this egotistical, narcissistic, uh, insecure deity. Uh, he he craves the worship of his creatures. He wants us to tell us uh, to tell him how awesome he is. He wants us to praise him and remind him how great he is. He's just so arrogant and, and egotistical. Uh, you know what? And then and then he threatens you with punishment if you don't do that. You know what? What kind of what kind of a god is this? That he's so insecure about his his own greatness that he needs us to praise him. It's just. Uh, it's a failure to understand exactly who and what God is. God is a maximally great being. He is omnipotent, omniscient, omni- he is all-powerful, 
infinitely powerful. He is all-knowing, infinitely knowing. He knows everything that could, would, and will happening, uh, and will happen. He is everywhere present. He is necessarily existent. He is infinitely loving and just and pure and righteous, and he's good. There's no sin in him. He is the paradigm of greatness. He is Nothing can be greater than him. This is what's called perfect being theology. So God is what theologians call the somum bonum. He is the highest good. And what we Christians do when we evangelize, we point people towards the highest good. We say, worship God. And you can find this all throughout the Psalms. The psalmists are directing people, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you mountains, praise the Lord, you hills, praise the Lord, people of Israel. Pray, you know, what we're doing is we're directing people or in poet in a poetic way, the birds and animals <laughs> to the high to the greater good, the greatest, the greatest good, the highest good, God. We're saying direct your attention towards the greatest being in the universe, the high, the ultimate, the good, morally good omnipotent omniscient he deserve he is deserving he is devote he is deserving of your praise he is deserving of your worship how do we know god is a maximally great being well there's an argument that i mentioned for for god's existence that not only proves that god exists but it also demonstrates that he is a maximally great being it's called the ontological argument for god's existence And I can't, I don't have enough time in this podcast episode to get into this, but there is, um, I have some blog posts on the website. I talk about this argument in great depth in my book, in uh, The Case for the One True God, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Historical Case for the God of Christianity, available on Amazon.com in paperback and Kindle. Uh, and Inspiring Philosophy has some videos on the ontological argument. You should really watch his videos, too, if you want to go into more depth, because I'm running out of time here. But the ontological argument goes, one, it is possible that a maximally great being exists. Two, if, a maximally, if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world— then a maximally great being exists in all possible worlds. Four, if a maximally great being exists in all possible worlds, then a maximally great being exists. Five, therefore, wait. Uh, no, wait, then a maximally great being exists in the actual world. Five, if a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Six, therefore, a maximally great being exists. Um, this is a logically valid argument. The conclusion follows from the premises by the logical rule of hypothetical syllogism. And again, if you want to see a defense of the argument, check out my book, The Case for the One True God. I talk about it in chapter five. I've also got some blog articles on cerebralfaith.net, Inspiring Philosophy, has a whole video series on the ontological argument. You can see just just how all of the premises are true but uh so but this argument not only gets you god but it gets you all of the attributes that count what make a maximally great being a maximally great being is is great in every area where a person could be great he has all what is called great making properties and he has those properties to the greatest extent possible so i believe that God is a maximally great being on the basis of not just the Bible, but the, the modal ontological argument. And on the basis that God is a maximally great being, I can then form the following argument for why it makes sense that not worshiping God is a sin. One, premise one, it is unjust to not give someone what they deserve. Two, God deserves worship. Three, therefore, it is unjust to not worship God. Let me state that again. One, it is unjust to not give something to not give someone something they deserve. Two, God deserves worship. Three, 
therefore it is unjust to worship God. Now, I think most of us would agree with the first premise. I think, you know, if someone re- is entitled to something, if they deserve something, that if you withhold that something from them, whatever that something is and whoever this someone is, you are doing an in- you are doing a disservice to that person. You're dishonoring him. You're you're not being fair to him. So I don't think anyone, you know, I could be wrong. There might be someone out there listening thinking you know they might disagree, but I think I think that this the first premise is going to be the non-controversial, the non-controversial one. The second premise that God is deserving of worship—that's where the debate is going to lie. Number one: Does God exist? Is the ontological argument sound? Is it? You know, are all the premises true? Um, and what about the what those? Uh, you know, a, atheistic moral objections against God. You know, how do those hold up? Well, that's good. that's going to be a matter of debate, but. I, I think the ontological argument is sound. I think God is a maximally great being, and being a maximally great being entails being the highest good. And being the highest good means you are entitled to worship. So no, God is is not egotistical. He's just he's just commanding you to direct your attention, to give your devotion, your uttermost devotion to the highest good, which I hate saying— it just happens to be him. I hate saying just happens to be him because that makes it sound like God is contingently maximally great, which is, I, I think, an incoherent sentence. God is contingently maximally great. Maximally great. It, a maximally great being has ne- necessity as part of his existence. Um, but, um, you know, the psalmists direct the reader's worship to God because he's the highest good god directs worship to himself because he's the highest good the same reason the psalmist say praise him praise him praise him is the same way god's is the same reason that god says praise me praise me praise me not because he's egotistical but because he's the he is the appropriate object of worship and god says direct your attention to the appropriate object of worship which is not any of the idols, not any of the the fallen gods allotted to the seventy nations. You'll remember we had a discussion with Brian Gadawa last week about that. Nothing is de- deserving of creation except God. And if you deserve, if you if you choose to worship the creation instead of the Creator, well, that's that's a perversion of the way things ought to be. So, but anyway, I th- here here's what before I close, I just want to say I think. It is very ironic that God used an atheist to convince me that this response to the divine hiddenness argument is good. The divine hiddenness argument, ever since I heard Dan Barker talk about it in a debate with Richard G. Howe back in Charlotte, it's always kind of you know been a thorn in my side. It's always kind of stuck with me after that, and I haven't really, really been able to get rid of it. But it's gone now, and it's because of an atheist. <laughs> that is just like God. He didn't use a Christian apologist to convince me that this re- response, you know, oh, God needs to be hidden to a certain degree to prevent coercing us into heaven. Yeah, I've heard other Christian apologists say that, but I wasn't very convinced of it. God used an atheist to convince me of it. He used an atheist. That's just like him. I mean. <laughs> that's just like God to to do something like that to use an atheist to bolster my faith how crazy is that that's just i i just think that that's incredible that that God could use a converse an online conversation with an atheist to convince me that the not that the non-coerciveness argument for uh, response to the divine hiddenness argument that that's actually a good response it wasn't william lane craig it wasn't richard g howe wasn't richard swinburne wasn't inspiring philosophy it was an atheist uh that's just that's just cool uh, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Again, if you want to see me go to YouTube, go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. You can help fund the ministry, and we, we can get to I, – I, hopefully I can get a more powerful computer, and I can start making videos. 
Um, I want to give a, a shout out to my patrons, Jordan Apodaca, uh, Richard, not, not Richard Swim, um, Kevin Walker, um, Kevin Walker, Brandon Whitaker, David Parrish, Jordan Hampton, Edwin Liu, Nathan Hamilton. Um, thank you all for supporting me. Um, and thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. God bless you, and I will see you next time. Peace out.